Is the world flat? Are we really going to talk about this again? Yes, we are. Today, we're going to have Jason Pratt, a real rocket scientist, on the show. Welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Welcome back. So today, yeah, we are going to have rocket scientist Jason Pratt. Uh, he is the division director of launch and space operations at PEO Space Systems. Uh, Jason has some credentials that I think are going to uh, help shed some light on this subject. He has personally sent uh, satellites into space. Uh, okay, so he's going to have a lot to say on this subject. And uh, I'm really excited about it. I've already recorded two sessions with Jason. Uh, today you're going to hear the first session. I, I heard Jason for the first time on Worldview Weekend with Brandon House, which I've mentioned that show many times in the past on this podcast. If you don't subscribe to that show yet, you really got to check it out. Uh, it is a wealth of information. And uh, Brandon House, he releases a podcast every single day, five days a week. He's very well read. Uh, he does his research. He knows what he's talking about. And he talks on uh, so many different issues surrounding apologetics, worldview issues, and even mixes in current events. So yeah, if that's a show you haven't checked out, you really need to check it out. It's really good. Uh, but I heard Jason on that show. Uh, and when I first heard him, he was not talking about the flat earth subject, although uh, he just appeared on Brandon House's show uh, recently speaking about the flat earth. And darn it, I recorded this show before Brandon House. This would be the first and probably only time I beat Brandon to the punch, but yet he still got his out before me. Go figure. <laughs> but anyway, I heard him on Brandon House and I thought, boy, he would be perfect to add to this series on the shape of the earth. Is this spherical or is it flat like a pancake? Also, I suppose since we're talking about Brandon House for the moment, uh, during this session that you're going to hear, Jason mentions that Brandon and him and I are mutual friends. That's not entirely true. I have not met Brandon yet. I really hope to because... Uh, I, I have much to thank him for. Uh, a lot of inspiration I get from uh, or, or for this show comes from some of the subjects that are brought up in his show. Uh, just like I said, it's just a wealth of information. And I love listening to his podcast. It's good stuff. But I just want to throw that out there. I have not met him yet. Uh, and God willing, I plan to someday. In fact, I'd like to make it out to his Worldview Weekend Conference that's coming up on April 28th, 29th, and 30th. Uh, that's in the plans. I'm going to try and do that. It's in Branson, Missouri. You guys might want to check it out. Uh, among other speakers, I mean, Brandon's going to be there. Uh, Jason Pratt's going to be there. Ron Rhodes is going to be there. It's going to be an awesome, awesome conference. So anyway, it's over a weekend. Branson, Missouri. If you go to Brandon's website, uh, Worldview Weekend. Oh, man. 
Now I'm drawing a blank. If you just Google Worldview Weekend, you're going to find his website. No problem, right? All right. So anyway, Jason Pratt, he's the one we're talking about here today. Jason Pratt's website, theanvilministry.com. Again, his website, theanvilministry.com. And uh, there is a a lot of good information there. I know that uh, Jason is adding to that as he goes. Uh, You're going to hear that uh, during this podcast, he's going to bring up the fact that he has an up-and-coming podcast uh, as well. It's going to be called It's Not Rocket Science. And if you hear me uh, cracking up every time he mentions the name, I apologize about that. Uh, It's because of a terrible video Uh, that uh, my wife showed me that she found on Facebook that was from who knows what BBC show. Uh, But uh, anyway, so I'm going to save some of the introductions for Jason uh, for when Jason comes on the podcast here in a minute. I'm going to have him tell us about his background, and I think he can say it so much better than I can. He's got a really fascinating background. You're going to love to hear from him. Uh, So anyway, you know, without further ado... Let's welcome him. Jason, welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Thank you, Mike. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Uh, so, friends, today we're going to be talking about the subject of the flat earth versus the spherical earth, this debate uh, that has been going, and it seems like the flat earth movement has been gaining steam, which is surprising to a lot of us. Uh, so, uh Jason Pratt has some unique expertise to add to this debate. And so, Jason, tell my listeners about your background and experience and what makes you an authoritative source on this subject. Yeah, Mike, I'd be happy to. Thank you for the, the opportunity. So uh, my, my background starts in, uh, in engineering. Uh, I have a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering and then uh, a master's degree in aerospace engineering. Uh, follow that with uh, a short career in uh, the Federal Aviation Administration, and then I moved and uh, <clears throat> enlisted in the Navy, and I've uh, been serving 20 years now in the United States Navy. Uh, so uh, in that uh, role, I've, I've been an officer. I've uh, flown a number of aircraft. Uh, I've flown turbo uh, turboprop uh, aircraft to uh, fighter jets. So from T-34s to F-14s, F-18s, F-15s, F-16s. Uh, then I've also attended uh, the U.S. Navy Test Pilot School. So I'm a graduate of the Test Pilot School and served a test tour at uh, uh, one of our uh, test squadrons, uh, testing a variety of aircraft. So I've flown over uh, 20 uh, types of uh, fixed-wing, rotary-wing, and uh, glider aircraft. And uh, with my uh, background in, in aerospace engineering, uh, I have also transitioned over to what we call the uh, Aerospace Engineering Division Officer uh, Corps and uh, kind of specialized in that in the uh, in the space cadre uh, where we specialize in, in space-type uh, uh, assignments. And so with that, I, I also have a, a ministry called the Anvil Ministry, and it's important for me to note that uh, my work in the United States Navy my work in ministry are two separate things, so I have to give a disclaimer that uh, the views I express are my views alone and not the views of uh, the United States Navy or the United States government. Uh, so, unfortunately, I have to make that uh, that disclaimer, but uh, it's an important one. Uh, so, with that, uh, you know, I've, I've been now serving in uh, the Navy uh, Navy Space Program, and I have had the pleasure to, to work in, uh, in space now for the last five years, and that's just uh, been a dream come true. I was also 
a finalist uh, and a U.S. Navy uh, candidate for the astronaut program. I, I was not selected by NASA, but I, I do have multiple friends who, who have been, and, uh, and they love their work uh, in, in that uh, field. And so, you know, with that, too, I also like to know, you know, I try to teach uh, my own youth uh, and youth groups that I speak to the importance of, of understanding logical fallacies. And, and one that's important is um, uh, the logical fallacy of, uh, of authority. Yeah. And so, you know, even though my, my background does, does give me credibility, um, I always encourage people that uh, you should take the answers I, I provide and do your own research and understand uh, the situation for yourself. Amen. Uh, because uh, just saying that something is true because so-and-so said so, uh, that, that in itself is a, is a logical fallacy, and it's important to understand the matters for yourself. That's so hopefully right. we'll help you do that. you uh, a starting point to, uh, to, to do your own research. Thank you for that, too. Um, yeah, so... <laughs> Uh, uh, and, and by the way, friends, his website, theanvilministry.com, that's theanvilministry.com. Uh, there is some uh, help, helpful resources on there. It sounds like, uh, Jason, you're going to be starting a podcast here fairly soon. Uh, tell us about that real quick. Yeah, sure. Well, a mutual friend of ours, Brandon House, has uh, encouraged me to start a podcast, uh, a weekly 30-minute uh, podcast to just cover a variety of topics, uh, primarily in the field of science and addressing some of those things. And in particular, we see some pretty uh, dramatic uh, headlines in various science periodicals and websites and, and uh, news sources. And so sometimes uh, those, those headlines are, are have much more excitement in them than the actual facts and, uh, and reality of the, of the articles. <clears throat> so I want to kind of dispel some of those uh, myths that might be perpetrated, uh, as well as just breaking down things. So the, the title of my podcast is "It's Not Rocket Science," and the intent there is to, to try to make things uh, simplify them, uh, take things that appear complicated, uh, and, and just kind of boil them down uh, without oversimplifying. But, but you know, call out the facts so that we can understand things and and see what the the, the reality is. Uh, so that's that's the podcast. Hopefully, to uh, to be uh, launched. Uh, no pun intended in uh, the new year so in january hoping to do that and uh and proceeding from there right on yeah i'll be looking forward to that uh i'll, I'll make sure that i make another announcement when this podcast is launched uh, i love the name uh it's not exactly rocket science uh that's awesome and so i would love to let my listeners know as soon as you release that um just to you know uh, get raise awareness awareness to what you're doing so uh yeah, so, okay, as Division Director of Launch and Space Operations and some of the other things that you've, uh, positions you've held, how do you know that the Earth is spherical? Yeah, so, you know, I think taking a, a step back, if I may, uh, for a moment, you know, when you approach me for this topic, I, I, I have to admit, I kind of chuckled. You know, <laughs> I, I've, I've heard of the flat Earth um, arguments, but only uh, kind of in passing, and I've really just kind of, glossed it off uh, and, and, and didn't give it much, much consideration. Uh, so uh, when, when you approached me with it, uh, I, I did start uh, doing my own research, and I, I was surprised. You're absolutely right. The, the movement is, is actually gaining some momentum. It's um, uh, increasing, I think, in, in some popularity and, and growing in, in various circles. And, uh, and then I realized some of the, the arguments that they make um, and I was intrigued. I have to say, at first, I was intrigued. 
um, because I can kind of relate to some of what they're doing. So I'm trying to understand maybe the purpose, the intent behind why they're taking this position um, and, you know, why they're endeavoring to support it. So I could relate with, uh, with why they're doing this uh, because uh, from my own background, I was uh, an atheist until uh, I graduated college and went into grad school. Uh, actually, until I graduated grad, graduate school, I, uh, I had really dedicated my life uh, to science. And in, in many regards, as an atheist, uh, I became my own god and, uh, and also worshipped uh, science to a degree. Mm-hmm. And uh, when, I, when I was saved, to kind of make a long story short, I, I really spent the last 20-plus uh, years understanding the science, understanding uh, some aspects of it. You know, I, I knew what the Bible taught. I used to mock Christians for believing uh, that the earth was uh, created by a creator God and that the Bible was of divine fiat and that uh, it claimed that the earth was created in a literal six days and only several thousand years ago. So I knew what the Bible said, and at the moment of my conversion, I realized, well, either the Bible's true, and I'm truly saved, or it's not, and I'm not saved. And, um, you know, having having the reality of my salvation at hand, I, I trusted the Scriptures and have set uh, a lot of my effort to really studying the science as I did in college, but then looking beyond just what is uh, sometimes taught. Uh, part of my conversion also relates to my academic advisor, who was also a, an expert in uh, or an authority in thermodynamics, and uh, he actually had written some articles and had a poster on his door that stated that the Earth was indeed only several thousand years old, and that, uh, that evolution was a scientific impossibility. As an atheist, that, that infuriated me, <laughs> and uh, that's what that basically started my quest to really disprove the Bible. Um, and in reality, the, the Bible uh, disproved my whole um, worldview, and so uh, eventually leading to my conversion. So with that background, then, I, I trust what the Bible says about creation and, and the earth, uh, because it is God's Word. It is mm-hmm. divine. Uh, it is without error. Uh, and everywhere that it speaks on scientific matters, it does so without flaw. And so... With that, I, I kind of understand perhaps maybe if the intent behind, uh, the, you know, the flat earthers call people that believe in a, a earth that is a sphere, they call them ballers. Uh, so with, with that, I don't know if it's a pejorative or not, but uh, uh, with that, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, I, I call the flat earthers flatters. Uh, so I, I'm trying to understand then why the flatters uh, hold to this concept. Um and if it is because they desire to be first and foremost uh, faithful to God's word, then then I appreciate that, and I uh, uh, encourage them. But I would also encourage them to really look uh, thoroughly at the scriptures and make sure that they're understanding them rightly, because right. there's you know there's a few scriptures that talk to uh, the earth and and make certain statements that may or may not lead to a particular. Uh, concept of the shape of the earth, and uh, I'm referring specifically uh, to Job 26 uh, verses 7 to 10, and uh, Proverbs 8 uh, verses 27 to 29, uh, Isaiah 40 uh, 21 to 22, and maybe somewhat uh, tangentially then uh, Luke uh, 17 verses 30 to 37. Mm-hmm. And so, in in the Old Testament, they the, the writers uh, of of Job and then uh, Proverbs. In Isaiah, 
use a common uh, or a, a, the, the same word, basically. They use a Hebrew word, uh, chug, which uh, basically uh, can be translated as compass, circle, circuit, uh, vault, um, or uh, something similar. Uh, it can also be translated to mean a perplexing saying or question. Uh, it can also mean a riddle. Um, and so there's a variety of meanings um, that can be ascribed to this particular word. And with Hebrew, it's important, or all Bible interpretation, you know, and there's a study hermeneutics, that, that is the, the study of interpretation. Uh, and in biblical hermeneutics, it's the study of biblical interpretation. We have to look at the original languages, so we're looking at Hebrew. And in all cases, both in Hebrew and Aramaic and Old Testament and Greek and New Testament, uh, context is vital. Uh, in fact, the first three most important rules in Bible interpretation uh, is frequently uh, said to be context, context, and context. And so with that, it's important to look at the context to understand which, which meaning is ascribed to the word in this case. Uh, there's uh, a hermeneutic error called the error of illegitimate totality transfer. Sounds complicated, but basically what it means is you take uh, the original language meanings, all of them, uh, kind of wrap them up and then ascribe them to uh, every usage of that word. And that just will create confusion and not a good understanding. And so with that, we, we see that, um, for instance, in Job 26, verses 7 to 10, uh, I'll quote from the King James, says, He stretcheth out the north over the empty place. He hangeth the earth upon nothing. He bindeth up the waters on his thick clouds, and the cloud is not rent under them. He holdeth back the face of his throne and spreadeth his cloud upon it. He hath compassed the waters with bounds until the day and night come to an end. Um, the, the verse 10 there is kind of the key one in, in another translation in uh, uh, New American Standard uh, quotes it, uh, or translates it this way. He has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. Uh, so with that, you can see there's room, I think, there. Uh, that some could say that uh, a flat earth would would not violate uh, the concepts in that verse, uh, but neither would a spherical earth. Uh, right. so neither one, I don't think, is specifically uh, necessarily ascribed um, in in this verse, that, that you, you have to choose one over the other uh, necessarily. I think if we look at some of the other verses again, uh, you do see that um, a, a sphere probably would be preferable. Um, but again, a flat earth nor a sphere are necessarily mandatory. Um, likewise, in, in Luke, uh, Jesus talks about his his return, that the, the disciples had asked him when his return would be. And he, he said, on that day, this, when the Son of Man is revealed, in that day he which shall be upon the housetop and the stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. Um and he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. And then we move down to uh, verse 34. He says, I tell you, in that night there shall be two men in one bed, and one shall be taken, and the other shall be left. Two women shall be grinding together, the one shall be taken, the other left. So we, within the span of just a couple of verses, we, we see day and night uh, at this simultaneous occurrence um, mm -hmm. of his return. And so clearly that can be ascribed by a spherical earth that is uh, daylight on on half of it and nighttime on the other. Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure how that would fit in a flat earth scenario. Uh, you know, I've seen some where they kind of have the arguments where the sun is, is rotating in such a way to create um, 
daytime on a portion of the circle and nighttime on the other portion. Yeah. Um, I think that's kind of challenging. They, they use the argument of the midnight sun as the most, um, I think, as the strongest proof of, of one of their um, uh, presumptions. So I think that's that's a little bit challenging. <clears throat> so I'll just give that as kind of background as to try to understand. You know, I appreciate uh, if it's their desire to be faithful to God's Word, but again, I see no theological compulsion to say that the earth is, is necessarily flat. Um, so I don't see a good theological case there. Um, so I, I think we'd want to move then to um, science. And, and science there, uh, I have to make a distinction. I, I call, you know, science is, is something that's unique. Um, it, one of the key aspects of science, of, of the true scientific method, is that it's observable and that it's repeatable. Uh, and then from that uh, observation and repeatability, you can either falsify or verify a hypothesis and then draw a conclusion. And that, that is absolutely vital. The, the observational aspect of it is so vital. And, you know, in a lot of areas that I touch on and, and speak on uh, involving evolution, there must be uh, the capability to observe. And so many aspects of evolutionary science, quote-unquote science, uh, is that uh, it is simply not observed. Uh, it is <clears throat> basically in, in a field of um, uh, historical, um, uh, I think, assumptions, and, and many of which actually violate observable science uh, or even violate uh, the laws of science uh, as they're um, established. Um, so, you know, I, I make the aspect there, I'm going to refer to a lot of various things, and these are things that are, one, observable. <clears throat> so if we can observe and the Earth, particularly from a distance, <clears throat> or take some other measurements, uh, then that would be uh, kind of key, and then being able to repeat it. Um, so you referred to my, my work as a division director. Um, I was a division director at uh, in the Navy space program for uh, launch and space operations. <clears throat> and so um, that's probably been the most significant aspect of my work lately. One vital aspect of that is uh, in the field of orbital mechanics. And in orbital mechanics, um, we reestablish and describe the motion of a satellite based on six orbital parameters. Those orbital parameters really are used to define uh, everything all the way down to when we launch the satellite. Uh, so, you know, when you, when you see various launches that might be uh, um, promoted uh, in the news or reported on, they have a launch window. Uh, that launch window is dependent upon where you want that satellite to end up in a point in space at some time. Uh, it's also somewhat dictated by the space debris that's, that's orbiting the Earth, um, and particularly in low Earth orbit. There's an awful lot of space debris out there, some operational, some just junk, some discarded aspects of upper stages of, of the rockets, of the launch vehicles. Hmm. Um, so so with that, the, the orbital parameters define uh, all of this as well as then where you want the satellite to end up. And um, there's, there's probably two of the key aspects uh, of the orbital parameters are, uh, one, the relative position uh, to the North Star and, uh, and then the radius of the Earth. So fundamental to much of orbital mechanics in, involving anything orbiting the Earth uh, requires the Earth to have a radius. 
<clears throat> to be uh, sphere-like. And that's just uh, that's kind of the basic physics behind uh, how we establish uh, and define the orbit of any particular satellite. Um, so the satellites that I've worked on, uh, I've worked on satellites that, uh, that are in uh, what's called low-Earth orbit and uh, also in geosynchronous Earth orbit. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment, maybe. Um, but um, the, the key thing, again, is, is using the radius of the Earth to understand the altitude of the satellite. Uh, and we use that, the radius of the Earth at about uh, 6,800 kilometers as basically a fundamental constant. So that, that's kind of my work in the space industry and, and the use of orbital mechanics and observing the satellites. Um, I'll talk a little more about that. But also, uh, I've spent the bulk of my career flying um, tactical jets uh, and also uh, instructing. So in, in flight planning, and even before I joined the, the military, I was uh, had my, my pilot's certificate uh, and flew. And in flight planning, we use what's called the WGS-84, which stands for World Geodetic System 1984. It was, uh, that particular one was established in 1984. There were earlier versions. Uh, the current version that's still used today is that version established in 1984. And the WGS-84 standardized the mean surface of the Earth uh, to approximate the entire surface of the planet and allows that surface to be basically presented on a flat chart so I can open that chart up and, and plan my flight path. That representation of a spherical Earth on a two-dimensional chart um, allows me then to pick uh, two points uh, my, my origin and my destination and draw basically a straight line if I'm able to, uh, to dry, fly a direct flight path. Um, sometimes we're not allowed to because there's kind of highways in the sky, if you will, um, various uh, jetways. And, uh, but if we can, we'll, we'll ask direct, and, and with GPS nowadays, we can do that more readily. So on that flat chart, I, I draw a straight line from my origin to my destination, but in, in re real space, uh, on the, the surface of, of a globe, that is not really a straight, straight line. It's a curve. And so um, that's because on a, on a globe, um, the shortest distance between two points uh, on the surface of that globe is not a straight line. It's actually a curve uh, or an arc. And uh, we call that curve or that flight path that we'll take and we plan to the great circle route. And so the great circle route basically takes uh, a, a large circle the size of uh, – the diameter of the Earth and basically slices the Earth where that uh, arc uh, of the circle um, intersects at your origin and your destination and will create uh, that arc uh, around. So if you're flying in uh, a passenger plane, all passenger airlines, they, they will plot a path that uses that great arc or the great circle route. And many of them with the TVs on board, you can uh, basically uh, plot and watch your flight path and see how long it is till you get to your destination. And if you look at it, you'll see uh, you'll see the arc in that uh, flight plan, and you'll see that you are indeed flying uh, in, a, in a great circle route. And so uh, that uh, being able to plan our flight that way uh, requires the Earth to be a spheroid. Um, if it were not, uh, we would never be able to get to our destination uh, in flight planning that way. Um, so that does require the Earth to be um, a sphere. If it was a flat disk, uh, I would not be able to flight plan the way that I do and carry out the hundreds of missions and, and hundreds of, and hundreds of flights that I've uh, successfully completed. Um, so to me, that's that's just a, a very basic fundamental argument that the Earth uh, is required to be 
uh, a spheroid. Otherwise, I, I, I wouldn't ever reach any destination. Yeah. And uh, one of the things you mentioned is that you have sent satellites up into space. I know I'm skipping one of the questions. We'll come back to it. But you have personally sent satellites up into space. Now, coming from the, the flatters, as you call them, and, and I don't think that's an insult. I'd say that's probably pretty fair. Uh, coming from the flatters movement, uh, some of them claim that satellites don't exist. In fact, I've seen videos that flat out say right on the title, satellites don't exist proven. And, and so you're saying you've actually set satellites into space. How do they stay in orbit if, you know, okay, if the Earth is spheroid, how do they stay in orbit versus if they were flat? Is there any possible way you could keep a satellite in orbit? Right. Yeah. And that's an interesting claim. So, you know, I have a couple um, rebuttals to, to that claim. Uh, one is, uh, again, the personal experience of my friends that have been to space. Uh, I've got a number of them. Um, I, I've worked closely with them. I've known them for many years. And uh, they themselves have personally, physically orbited the Earth and have been able to uh, be eyewitnesses to the reality of the Earth being a sphere. They have actually traveled around the globe um, dozens or even hundreds of times. One of my friends was up uh, for over six months. Is and, that uh, uh, Jeffrey, uh, Colonel Jeffrey Williams? Colonel Jeffrey is, is one of them, and, uh, there, and there's, um, uh, there's a few other uh, friends of mine that have been on the space station. And so, um, you know, they, they have, they've been eyewitnesses. So, you know, that's science, right, observational science. And, again, good observational science does not contradict anything in Scripture. And Scripture, uh, there's nothing in Scripture that requires me to uh, hold to a flat Earth. <laughs> and so these individuals have, in fact, observed the Earth, uh, circled it many, many times uh, in low Earth orbit, and uh, and will testify that uh, that the Earth is indeed a sphere, and um, and I trust them. They have no reason to lie. Uh, I have mm -hmm. uh, talked to them. I've, I've had emails between them, uh, one of them while they were even in space, and so um, they were indeed there. Uh, it's it's not a uh, it's not a myth. It's not a lie. Uh, folks have actually traveled there. Additionally, I have personally uh, sent a, a number of satellites into space. Uh, I've been responsible for overseeing the um, preparation of the satellite, all the way from uh, uh, receiving it at a, the Space Processing Center to uh, getting it ready for launch, uh, getting all the systems prepped up, the, the batteries charged, the, the fuel and the oxidizer loaded, the thermal blankets uh, closed out, uh, and, uh, and securing the uh, deploy deployable uh, surfaces, make sure they're stowed and secured. And then mounting the uh, satellite onto uh, the launch vehicle adapter ring, and then encapsulating the uh, the spacecraft in uh, the payload fairing. Uh, the largest fairing that uh, I've worked with is one of the largest in the business. It's uh, five meters in diameter and over 23 and a half meters tall. That's over 77 feet. Uh, so that gets then transported out to the uh, what we call the space launch complex, and gets lifted on top of the launch vehicle. Uh, the whole vehicle then being over 205 feet tall, um, specifically an Atlas V uh, rocket. And then uh, I was uh, responsible for training the, the launch console team of over 30 members for the space vehicle side. Uh, I personally observed all of these uh, preparations, uh, then the preparation of the launch of the space vehicle, um, 
for for launch, getting the batteries prepped up in the the bus uh, systems, the, the spacecraft bus, which is basically what uh, uh, provides the care and feeding of the payload, and uh, and then the closeouts, and then launch. I the launch, observed the rocket go into space, and then uh, shifted my focus to the ascent of the vehicle to uh, what we call um, for geo. Uh, uh, stationary or, or geosynchronous orbit, uh, we want the launch vehicle to take us to what's called GTO, that's a geosynchronous transfer orbit, and we uh, we track it. We track it with uh, ground radar, with aircraft, with other uh, satellites such as TDRS, uh and satellites that are connected to what's called the AFSCN, that's the Air Force Satellite Control Network, and uh, all these various systems are tracking the motion of the satellite. We also have telemetry uh, which is basically information coming down from our own satellite telling us where it is. And so we have all these various systems tracking the, the, the path and motion of the satellite uh, on ascent up into uh, geosynchronous transfer orbit, um, at which point it is then separated from the launch vehicle and then commences its own orbit. It's a circular orbit. We have uh, tracking stations <clears throat> across the globe in Hawaii, Guam, various parts of uh, uh, the continental United States and uh, Hawaii and, uh, and elsewhere. So we're, we're watching uh, this satellite. We're able to track it um, up until, it, again, it, it separates from the launch vehicle. We're actually able to watch live feeds of video uh, coming from the launch vehicle. I'm able to see the, uh, the effects of um, the shadows or the light um, from the sun or the earth on the satellite so we can see kind of where it is in relation to uh, the Earth and the Sun, and then uh, track it as it separates and then goes to its final orbital location. Uh, for most of our satellites that I've launched, we, we park it over Hawaii. Um, that takes us about nine days. We do about seven burns of what's called the liquid apogee engine. <laughs> and what that allows us to do is circularize the orbit. Uh, initially, it's in what's called a, an elliptical orbit. We want to circularize it. Uh, we also need to do orbit raising. We need to get up to the geosynchronous uh, orbital belt, um, which uh, which is about uh, 35,000 kilometers. And then we also want to reduce what's called the inclination, um, <clears throat> because if you don't launch exactly the equator and then go around the equator, uh, the satellite will have what's called an inclination to its orbit. So because we launch out of Florida. Uh, we're inclined at the same latitude uh, that Florida is at the Kennedy Space Center. So we want to reduce that. We want to get it closer to the equator. Uh, so it's revolving uh, around the Earth um, approximately at the equator and uh, at the same rate that the Earth is spinning. So we want an orbital period of 24 hours so that basically our satellite stays in one location over the ground. Um, so being able to track the satellite around like that, I, I can... It requires the Earth to be round, or none of the physics would be uh, correct. Uh, the tracking would be flawed, and we would have to change all the physics and, and, and calculations and mathematics that go into all of our flight planning and, and uh, flight operations. <laughs> you know, Jason, you have got to have, by far, one of the most fascinating jobs out there. <clears throat> all of my geek listeners are drooling right now at all the fun that you get to have at work. <laughs> that I mean, seriously, there's so and, and you get to fly planes like F-14s. I mean, come on. Um, <laughs> OK, so 
in your line of work, clearly you can see that the Earth is a spheroid. Okay, what about um, what other lines of work? Because, okay, there's going to be some flatters out there. Again, I don't mean that as, a, as a, any kind of pejorative, but there's going to be some out there that, that buy into the flat Earth model that might think, <laughs> conspiracy aside, they might think you're actually in on it, okay, that, that you're one of them. Okay, what other trades out there, other lines of work, occupations, are going to run into issues where they have to calculate based off of a spherical Earth, and therefore they too would have to be in on the conspiracy? Right, so that, that, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, you know, there's so many various fields uh, that, that really do require a, a spherical Earth. Uh, one aspect of, of having a spherical Earth, then, is the necessity of gravity. Um, a, a spherical Earth, having mass, uh, the, the whole concept of gravity comes from the attraction of two masses to each other, uh, with the Earth being such a much larger mass than any individual um, or the atoms that are around about the Earth. Uh, that is what kind of keeps things uh, more or less where they are, if you will. So gravity is very important uh, for that whole uh, construct in the flat Earth model, they, they basically say gravity is a, is a myth. It's a uh, um, uh, it, it, it's not real, and and what we're experiencing is the constant acceleration of the Earth, um, yet never reaching uh, never reaching the uh, speed of light. Uh, so I'd have to look at, at the, the reality. You know, they, they use uh, uh, the theory of relativity to support that that you can in fact accelerate without actually ever reaching the speed of light. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily a, uh, a, an appropriate understanding of, of the theory of relativity, but not, not, notwithstanding, the, uh, the, the necessity of a spherical Earth and, and gravity pulling us towards the center of the Earth is kind of key to so many aspects, like, like my own. It's fundamental to, to so many of the, the physics uh, that go into the mathematics uh, and the observational science of, of uh, what we do every day. Uh, so, you know, apart from space exploration and the orbital mechanics uh, that I talked about, uh, navigation of just about any sort, including uh, if you use uh, GPS, which if you have a smartphone or a GPS unit in your, in your car or in your aircraft, uh, that requires the Earth to be a sphere because it uses the GPS satellites that are orbiting the Earth uh, and giving uh, time, distance, and position information uh, to the device and triangulating uh, the location. Can, um, I, can I, I stop you right there? I've, I've heard yep. some videos that they claim that it's actually basically from cell phone towers or various towers, and they'll just tri triangulate your position based off of cell phone towers. Have you heard that objection before? Um, well, you know, and that's valid. Uh, some of it is, you know, the cell phone towers are used in positioning. And that will give you uh, some aspect of time and distance from the location of the cell phone, or from yeah, from the tower to the cell phone. And so you can triangulate that way, and with numerous towers, and uh, they need to be, you know, the, the farther um, apart they are in, in angular sense, the more accurate your triangulation will be. So you can indeed triangulate yourself. Um, the problem is in, in aircraft when you get much above uh, about uh, three, four thousand feet. Uh, you lose uh, any signal to to a cell phone tower, um, huh. but but the the GPS signal uh, based on the wavelength that it's at uh, is, is still good, and and you're tracking the satellite. So 
Well, the cell phones require, they use the GPS. The GPS satellite um, helps uh, in timekeeping uh, for the signals and keeping uh, the, the towers or the cell phones uh, synced up between the towers. The towers actually go through a ground facility. I believe, um, you know, my, the satellite that I work on is very similar to uh, cell phone technology. Uh, so typically the, the, those towers require a switching facility that kind of uses the positioning of all the different cell phones and, and understanding where they're located and adjust the time necessary. Um, so yeah, the towers are certainly used, but the, the satellites are, are fundamental to that and, and necessary uh, for various operations, not just in positioning, but also in the timing and uh, coordination of the signals to, to complete the calls and, and keep the calls running. Um, so, you know, it, it is a partly valid point, but it would not eradicate the necessity of a GPS satellite. Yeah, so other, other areas would be, uh, you know, areas that require timekeeping um, would require that. Uh, weather forecasting uh, absolutely requires it. There's a, a unique uh, aspect, particularly in, in tracking hurricanes, uh, that re requires uh, the Coriolis effect. Uh, the Coriolis effect is, is uh, a, a pseudo uh, force, if you will. It's kind of basically an, more or less an imaginary force that, that results uh, based on the, uh, the rotation of the Earth um, as the Earth being uh, a non-inertial reference frame because it's, it's moving. It's not uh, stationary, and as something moves across the Earth, there, is, uh, there are accelerations occurring. And so that creates a Coriolis effect, which is why the... Uh, um, the water in the northern hemisphere, if you drain your tub, will spin in a clockwise rotation. And likewise, hurricanes travel in a uh, clockwise uh, or spin in a clockwise fashion. While in the southern hemisphere, uh, your bathtub will drain to the counterclockwise and monsoons will, uh, will rotate counterclockwise. And then you also see their, their path um, in, in the, the curve that you see them follow is the result, again, of the Coriolis effect. And we see that as well, like in a, in a car as you're driving, you'll, you'll experience uh, a pseudo force we call the centri centrifugal force. It's not a real force, um, but you feel it. You feel the effect of it, um, but it's, it's not an actual force. There's nothing actually pulling you uh, towards the outside of the vehicle. There's actually a, it's kind of a reaction, um, but it, it's quite different than a real force. And it, it, the physics gets a little, little complicated, but... Um, it's kind of well understood. And, and one other um, pseudo forces is what's called Euler forces. Um, and we deal with those in, uh, in, in flight mechanics. Um, so in any case, you know, weather forecasting uh, requires that uh, plumbing, uh, things dealing with liquid, uh, will deal with that. Many aspects of engineering, mechanical, electrical in particular, um, aspects of magnetism and dealing with uh, the results of magnetism. While you can have flat magnets, uh, the uniqueness of the magnetic sphere and the magnetic field on the Earth uh, does uh, require a, um, a sphere. Uh, aspects of oceanography, uh, astronomy, absolutely, uh, has a lot of uh, uh, fundamental aspects that, that require the Earth to be a sphere. Aerodynamics, in fact, requires uh, a sphere uh, in order to balance the forces uh, within an, uh, an aircraft. Uh, much of physics and uh, there's so many others. Um, a lot of fields uh, that touch on these things uh, do uh, surveying uh, would be another one. So yeah, a lot of a lot of careers, a lot of jobs, um, kind of fundamentally require a an understanding of um, our planet to be a sphere and not a disk. Otherwise, the the calculations we do make would would be in error, and and we would be able to 
realized that our assumption was wrong and we would have to make corrections. In other words, this would be a huge conspiracy. I mean, we're talking a, a very significant percentage of the population of the earth would be in on this and nobody has blown the whistle. Right. Yeah, <laughs> everyone has any kind of uh, understand, you know, uh, aspects of their job uh, in calculating what they have to do would, would have to say, hey, there's a problem here. Uh, my, 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 my calculations don't work. Uh, what's going on? Hmm. I was, uh, this might be a dumb question. I was watching a video here just a couple hours back before um, we started recording, and they were talking about, um, in the Northern Hemisphere, you have uh, Polaris, okay, and uh, is somewhat lined up with their axis here, where as the Earth is spinning, Polaris just kind of stays in one spot, and all the stars circle around it, Um which uh, it, it's okay. It, it mentioned that the stars circling around it are going in a counterclockwise motion. You mentioned the water in a drain goes in a uh, counterclockwise motion. Now I think I might be mixing myself up here. D is that basically in relation to the spin of the Earth? Then? Yeah, it's a little different. So yeah, the, the stars would be uh, because we are um, in the northern hemisphere. Um, you know, I've seen beautiful pictures. I, I've had friends take uh, time-lapse photography pictures from uh, Yosemite, um, looking uh, northward and, and being able to see the uh, uh, the starry field and, and seeing kind of the, the blur of the stars and the lines uh, revolving around Polaris, the North Star. Um, that's because we're we're rotating from uh, um, towards the east, and so when we look up to the north. Uh, things that are stationary to the north will appear to rotate from right to left or from east to west, which is a, a counterclockwise movement. Um, the movement on the, on the surface of the planet in the northern hemisphere is the result of that, but it goes uh, clockwise as kind of a reaction uh, to the movement uh, from, uh, from uh, east to west, if you will, or, or the rotation of the earth uh, towards the east. Uh, so that's more of a reaction, and it's kind of different because we have two different frames of reference, one being on the surface of the planet uh, with the Coriolis effect, uh, whereas looking out into space, uh, the Coriolis effect does not apply. Okay, okay. And he brought up in this video I was watching a, a fascinating objection to the flat Earth model. And I guess I'm kind of curious to hear what your thoughts are here. But if in the th – I'm sorry, in the northern hemisphere, if we can see – uh, Polaris, and it's staying in the same spot, and all of the other stars are rotating around it uh, counterclockwise, okay, but Polaris just continues to be that center point. You know, I'm, I'm trying to think of this in both a spherical model and a flat Earth model. If we go to the southern hemisphere, we have another central point. We have this uh, sigma Octantis, and I might be totally mispronouncing that, but Sigma Octantis, everything <laughs> rotates around it. All the stars rotate around it, but now they're going clockwise. Rather than counterclockwise, they're going clockwise, which is what you would expect. In other words, in a spherical model, this could work. The, the Polaris uh, being uh, uh, at the northern axis and Sigma Octantis being on the southern you could see where this would work perfectly, but on a flat Earth model, there's no way to make that work. Yeah, exactly. Uh, from the from a flat Earth perspective, 
uh, anywhere you were looking uh, to the North Star, you should be able to see it. Right. Um, but yet, that's not the case. It's uh, it's key uh, in the northern hemisphere, uh, and and the, the North Star is is also like I mentioned earlier. You know, the orbital parameters or orbital elements of an object. Um, that is the primary reference point that we kind of uh, point kind of everything to. Um, uh, so, uh, one of which is the true anomaly, uh, or the argument of uh, periopsis, or, or two aspects of orbital parameters or orbital elements uh, that are kind of uh, key um, to defining the the motion of a satellite, and um, and that depends on uh, the relative position um, of of the satellite, uh, and and then referring it to um, our position on Earth towards the North Star as well as then to the, uh, the orbital uh, element of the satellite to the North Star. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that, that's one very clear thing. Be, you know, just the, being able to see the North Star in the Northern Hemisphere, not so much in the Southern, uh, is, is pretty obvious that the, the Earth is not a disk. Right, right. And and just so my listeners can kind of wrap their brains around this, and I think I've, I've basically described this in previous podcasts, but if you're picking this up for the first time, um, one of the ways, well, the way that the flat earth movement will describe this flat earth is if you can imagine, and you might have to draw this out, but it is a flat circle and the north pole is actually in the center of the circle, okay? the circle of the earth, if you will. And then there's an ice ring that borders the outside of the circle. That's the South Pole. Okay, so on a flat earth model, the South is actually the perimeter ring. If you can imagine a clock, it's it's the, the wall of the clock around the clock, okay? And what's fascinating, if you can imagine, you know, put yourself on that, that little flat earth, um, we're talking about people in the southern hemisphere uh, can can see all of the same stars being there on the southern hemisphere but on a flat earth model how can somebody on one side of the flat earth disk see the same sky as somebody on the other side of the flat earth disk it's another one of those uh, situations that clearly show that it can't be flat there's no way to pull that off yeah yeah that's a that's a good description you know the uh you know, the clock analogy, understanding that the uh, basically the center of the clock where the hands would be uh, uh, fixed, um, that would be your North Pole. And something above that North Pole, like the North Star, you know, far, far above it, the center of the clock, uh, anyone on the face of the clock looking upwards um, towards that North position should be able to see the North Pole. And so if you're anywhere on the periphery of the clock, um, whether you're at the 3 o'clock, the 9 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 12 o'clock, and look upwards, you should see the North Star, but that simply isn't the case. And that's mm-hmm. that's one good example of, again, observational science. There's nothing in this contradicts anything in the Bible at all. Uh, in fact, if you uh, interpret the scriptures the way I do, and that it, uh, when it talks about the compass of the earth or the circle of the earth, uh, it is talking, in fact, about the sphere. And uh, nothing that I observe in uh, real space and time contradicts uh, my understanding of scripture. And in fact, uh, then it it, uh, it confirms it. Uh, so that just strengthens my own uh, belief and understanding of uh, of the Word of God for one, as well as uh, His creation. Yeah, Amen, Amen. Um, you know, I, I hate to keep bringing up these examples, but since we're already you know trying to think on this flat Earth plane here, 
Um, another one of the, the uh, claims of the flat Earth movement is that the moon and the sun are actually really close. They're not nearly as big as uh, we've been taught in school, but they're actually much smaller and they're very close to us. Uh, around 3,000 miles is what I'm pretty much seeing from video to video. Uh, and that's another thing is it's that there's so many of those videos out there and there's so many different websites and so many different um, uh, uh, modifications of the model that it's kind of hard to find a standard. But for the most part, about 3,000 miles away. Well, if the moon is only 3,000 miles away, um, well, see, people on the southern and northern hemispheres, as long as they're on the same uh, longitude, they can see the moon at about the same time, right? And yet, if, you, if you're looking from two different points like that on a sphere, um, you would expect, let me try this. Okay, <laughs> I'm having a hard time explaining this. From a flat Earth perspective, if you're looking at the moon from the southern and northern hemisphere, or rather the edge and the middle, you should be able to see two different sides of the moon, right? See what I'm saying? You'd, right. be, you'd be looking at it from two different angles, from two different 45 degree angles. You would be seeing different sides of the moon, but yet we always see just the same spot on the moon. And it's, you know, I, in fact, some flat earthers have tried to compensate by saying that it's it's a big hologram. And that, that might be going a little bit too far. <laughs> but, yeah, that, uh, that's interesting. It is. It's fascinating, but it's just another one of those things you can look at. You know, if we're all seeing that same side of the moon and we're looking from fairly far away from each other, two different points on the on the planet, um, but on the same longitude, we should be seeing different sides of the moon just by the angle that we're viewing it. But no, we see the exact same image, which suggests that it's not 3000 miles, but it's actually, you know, 239000 miles away which roughly about 30 earth diameters away. Right. Yeah. I think it's about, yeah, three, we, uh, about 384,000 kilometers. Um, and so that, you know, the, the geosynchronous satellites that I work on, they're about one tenth uh, the distance to the moon. Um, again, I, I've sat, uh, and, and had lunch with, uh, um, Jim Lovell and talked about his trip to the moon and around the moon and, uh, mm. and back. Um, and so, uh, you know, I trust him. Uh, I don't see any reason for him to be lying. Uh, I absolutely uh, believe he was, in fact, there and experienced everything um, that he experienced on his Apollo missions. Um, uh, I've also met and spoke to uh, John Young, who has been to the moon a couple times and uh, has, uh, in fact, walked on the face of the moon. And again, uh, He's, he's been there. It, it took them several days. It was exactly where we calculated it to be. It took them exactly how long we expected it to take them. Um, you know, the physics all worked out um, to get them there and back. And uh, to me, again, that's, that's observational science, uh, things that we can do and repeat. You know, again, launching a satellite, expecting it to go around a spherical Earth, putting a tracker on it, being able to actually track it, and see its movement um, and confirm uh, that it is, in fact, um, flying in orbit, uh, again, is, is observational. And we do it uh, many times a day, you know, over 10,000 pieces of space debris that we're tracking, um, not just space debris, but space objects. 
um, that we're tracking and, and um, modeling their, their movements uh, all based upon a, a spherical Earth. Uh, that, that to me uh, is, is just, you know, clear evidence of, of the truth and, and the facts. Yeah, yeah, and, and you're not even the only one. I mean, there's many different uh, groups that are putting satellites into space. You are not the only one. So again, you would have to, you would have to assume then that this conspiracy is just tremendous, um, and how that could be kept under wraps for this long is um, really a mystery. Uh, I mean, if you think about it. All right, guys, I'm going to stop right there. That is some fascinating stuff. Uh, Jason has a wealth of information, as you can see. Uh, next week, we will pick up where we left off here with Jason Pratt. Uh, he has so much more to say. I have a lot more fun questions for him. Uh, really putting some more uh, interesting questions or assertions, if you will, that the Flat Earth Movement puts forth. You see all these videos online and they're making all kinds of claims and we're going to hit several more next week. Really quick, as a side note, uh, friends, years back, um, I <laughs> endeavored to uh, try to get somebody to volunteer uh, to take all of my old podcasts that were about, you know, 10 to 15 minutes in length and start condensing them. So a lot of you know, many of my old series, I've got like 600, possibly 700 podcasts out there at this point. And I know that at least like the first four or 500 of them are 10 to 15 minutes in length. Okay. And what I'd like to do is, I just don't have the time to do this, but if somebody has time and understands Audacity or one of those other editing programs, if somebody wanted to volunteer and uh, take those podcasts, maybe like one series a week or maybe just one 45 to 60 minute podcast a week, but basically take several of them, trim the front and the back, the intro and the, the outro, if you will, and trim them off. And if there's any redundant stuff that's said over and over, because sometimes there's some review in those, uh, but trim all that off, scrunch it together and make one podcast out of three or four of them and just do one of those a week just to clean up all my old podcasts. And I know people have wrote me and said they love my show, but a lot of the old ones are kind of a pain to download because you got to go through and download, 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 you know, over and over and over for every 10 to 15 minute show. So if there's anybody out there that would love to do that, at one point somebody had come forward and volunteered. And I think this might be my fault, but it kind of fell to the wayside. And at this point, I don't recall what his uh, name is, or rather how to get a hold of him. Uh, I believe his first name was Steve. And I somehow in all of this, I managed to lose his contact information. So Steve, if you're still listening and you're still interested, although, you know, life moves on. I don't know if you're interested at this point, but if you're still interested, please contact me. Um, otherwise, if anybody else would like to take part in this, praise God, that would be awesome. Okay. On the same note, uh, if anybody out there would like to take my podcasts and put them into a video format for YouTube, so most likely it would be a matter of taking the audios and um, setting them to some pictures 
we got to be careful not to use pictures that uh, have any copyright associated with them. But basically, make videos out of my audios. That would be awesome as well. That would be really appreciated. I've had a lot of people contact me and ask me if I can take my library of podcasts and devote them to YouTube videos, which uh, there's a, a huge audience on YouTube that isn't into uh, audio files, podcasts. I don't understand why that is, but it is what it is. There's a, there is an audience there and, um, there's people there, then there's ministry that can be done there. So if anybody's interested in doing that, there are many audio to video programs out there. Uh, I think if I remember right, even your regular Windows PC and your Macs come with um, kind of a generic software that you can use to make movies. So uh, otherwise, I know there's there's programs out there that you can do it with as well. Anyway, if anybody's interested in helping me out there, that would be great. Uh, you can contact me on Facebook. You can email me at uh, youthapologetictraining at gmail.com. Uh, any of those avenues will work just great. And so anyway, I'll stop blabbing on and on. <laughs> Guys, next week we're going to be hearing again from Jason Pratt. You're going to love it. It's good stuff. And we're going to hopefully put an end to this idea that the earth is flat like Pancake. So with that, I love you guys, and we'll see you next week.